0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Oh, thank you. Okay, we are live tonight. So, everybody turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. So we finished up Philippians last week, and I said you wouldn't know what you were dealing with tonight until I announced it. So I announced it on Facebook a few hours ago. Um, so we're going to look at Isaiah 40. Uh, the reason we're looking at Isaiah 40 is because I'm preparing a sermon, not for this Sunday, but for next Sunday, in Proverbs chapter 30. I came across an interesting passage in Proverbs chapter 30. It's a prophecy about Jesus in Proverbs i would never seen before. And it took me on a journey to Isaiah 40. I started studying Isaiah 40 to help supplement that sermon. And I thought, I can't just supplement a sermon with Isaiah 40. i got to do a whole teaching on it. And I thought, this is so rich. I'll have a sermon prepared maybe one day for a Sunday morning to do two or three sermons. But tonight you're getting the full chapter on a Wednesday night where we can go a little bit deeper. So, um, for the past 39 chapters in Isaiah, all Israel has been hearing is judgment. Judgment for their sins. Judgment for their iniquities. And then all throughout the first 39 chapters, God's been saying to Israel, Babylon's going to take you into captivity. You're going to be overtaken by Babylon. You've been idolaters. Judgment, judgment, judgment's coming. And so it kind of reaches its peak in chapter 39. So when we get to chapter 40, chapter 40 has been considered one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, for its poetic imagery, which we're going to look at tonight, its deep theology, and its focus on good news of God's salvation for his people. And so there's a lot of different ways we could like divide up this passage of Scripture, but I've kind of looked at it, looked at the way it's structured, and I think this passage unfolds with six major descriptions of the Lord our God. So we're going to take it piecemeal, and we're going to look at these six descriptions. So here's the first description of the Lord our God. The Lord is the shepherd. These all start with S. I try to alliterate, so you guys remember them. Okay, good pastor, He alliterates. So these all start with S. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 through 11. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. So let's start in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare's ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up high on a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and he has his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. All right. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. So in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah the prophet says, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. So let's ask the question. Why will Israel need to hear comfort?
1: Because for 39
0: chapters, they've been hearing judgment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Judgment, judgment, sin, all this um, heaviness from God is coming at them. And so it's kind of like chapter 40 is this big, deep breath, where Isaiah says, okay, Israelites, take a deep breath. In the midst of all your judgment, there is hope, there is comfort, god does have a word for you and notice the way that verse 2 says speak tenderly to jerusalem god's been speaking judgment through isaiah for 39 chapters but now he says speak tenderly warfare's ended her iniquity is pardoned so the very first word we hear from isaiah 40 is your sins are forgiven israel even though you're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity, again, this is a prophetic book, God is still going to bring a remnant out after 70 years, but he's going to forgive their sin. Now you may say, okay, how is God going to pardon the iniquity of the sins of Israel? Is it going to happen immediately? Is it going to happen after 70 years? notice what verse 3 through 5 sound like a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord this is a prophecy about john the baptist this is a direct prophecy about john the baptist as a matter of fact if you go to luke chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 listen to what john the baptist says and it's, in your, it's, on your, it's on your sheet. So everything should be on your sheet except for in Isaiah. We're going to use our Bibles to go in Isaiah. Since I don't have a screen tonight, since I didn't want to be techie, we're just going old-fashioned. You guys got the sheets of paper. I'm going to stand and talk. You can figure out where we're at. Okay. All right. So Luke chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Where is that, John the Baptist? Well, right here. He quotes it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and rough places shall become level. Okay, that is almost a direct prophecy quote from Isaiah chapter 40 here, verses 3 and 4. Now what does it mean when John the Baptist comes as one preparing the way for Jesus What was John the Baptist's main message? Repent. Repent. So, this voice that's coming, that's preparing the way, is going to level the mountains and is going to make crooked the straight. In other words, that's repentance. What is repentance? Repentance means to be made low, to be lowered, to be humbled. To be made straight, to be converted, to change from your sin. So repentance literally means, I'm, I'm going I'm to use the board tonight, is that okay? Really what repentance means is to change your mind. To change your mind. About who you are. I'm going to close this and I'm going to open it because it's going to get hot and then i'll open it when they leave and they'll be cool so repentance means that you have a, a mind change god has done a work of grace in your heart and mind to change your mind about who you are and about who he is and so what this passage of scripture is doing here is isaiah is prophesying about the coming of john the baptist who's the forerunner to who jesus So ultimately, how is the comfort to the Israelites? Comfort, speak tenderly, your iniquity is pardoned. There's an immediate forgiveness of sins to the Israelites right here in Isaiah 40, but it's pointing us forward to not only John the Baptist, but who John the Baptist was announcing, and that's ultimately going to come through Jesus. So Thomas Watson defines repentance this way. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That's like the best definition I've found of of repentance. You're inwardly humbled. You're under conviction of sin. You've been made low. You've been humbled. But then there's visible change. Your life has changed, and you can see it in a person. So, Comfort, comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare's ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What's another word for iniquity? Sin. What's another word for pardoned? Forgiven. Okay. What did John the Baptist, whom is being prophesied right here, is a voice coming and preparing the way for the Lord, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus walking by in John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world Jesus is going to take away our sins our iniquity is going to be pardoned there's comfort for the people who are sinners because Isaiah prophesies about John the Baptist, who's going to come and prepare the way for Jesus, ultimately, who's the Lamb that's going to take away our sin. What are they doing wow. right behind us? He's having a war. It's all right. I don't know why they're in the room behind us. I'm not in the youth room, but that's all right. Brother. Get my belt. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My bad. That's, you never know. You never know. Come on in. You never know what. What are they doing behind us? Do you know what they're doing? Man? You don't know, you're just like, it's crazy. It's the, it's the teenagers. I know it's the teenagers. think so. they've got a ball. And in what do we pay our youth pastor to do? Play games with the youth? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so comfort for my people, iniquity of sin. For 39 chapters, they've been hearing about judgment isaiah prophesies about john the baptist who's going to come and preach repentance and john the baptist is going to point to jesus who takes away our sins and then look at verse 5. verse 5 is the centerpiece of the gospel and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken now this brings up a very interesting question The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What's the glory of the Lord? And when will it be revealed? Is this talking about some type of manifestation of God, like he showed up to Moses on the mountain? Is this talking about the end times? What what is this? I think in the context of John the Baptist announcing Jesus, the glory of the Lord is most clearly revealed when the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God, shows up on the scene... And takes away our sins on the cross so right here in verse 5 in the context of a future prophecy about john the baptist pointing to jesus as the lamb of god the glory of the lord shall be revealed and i want you we're going to come back to this at the very end so at the very end you'll you'll remember this where is god's glory most clearly revealed in jesus in the cross whoa knocked off my water goodness sakes there's no other room for us to go to guys those on those I don't know if those that are watching on um, Facebook live can hear the song the songs behind us anyway Jesus is the full glory of the Lord that's going to be revealed, who's ultimately going to take away our sins, who's going to be the ultimate comfort for God's people. So one thing you need to remember about Old Testament prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment and there's a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment is for the Israelites at that time, who Isaiah's prophesying they're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity, it's not going to last forever, God's going to bring them back and he's going to forgive them. But it's also pointing forward to John the Baptist, who's ultimately pointing forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate glory of God. So ultimately, this passage of scripture is about the gospel of Jesus. Ultimately. Okay? Now, verses 9 through 11, we hear this issue about, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verses 6 through 8 are fading immortality. shows the fleeting nature of us as humans the fact that we live a very short time on this earth and then it says all flesh is like grass its beauty is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows on it surely people are grass Wow. (laughs) what's he doing Encourage them. Yeah. That will just encourage them all the more. So this tells us that we are like grass, and so what Isaiah is doing here is he's saying, "Listen, don't get so caught up in your ability, in your power, and thinking that you've got control of your life, because ultimately God's in control of your life. Your life is short; you're like grass that fades. But what's going to last forever?" Verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Notice back also in verse 5, after the glory of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 1, comfort my people, says your God. God is speaking to Israel. God is speaking to us. The only thing that lasts is God's word. Now, this is just a side note. Do we not live in a world of sound bites? Everybody's saying stuff. All the time, people are talking, people are talking. You hear podcasts, you hear newscasts, you hear pundits, you hear comedians, you hear athletes, You everybody's speaking. Some good, some bad, some terrible, some entertaining. What's the only word that counts that's going to last forever? The word of the Lord. will stand forever. Okay. Now, verses 9 through 11... We get to a declaration of the gospel. Now, let's just talk about the word gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. Okay? Is there good news? Is the the gospel proclaimed in the Old Testament? Say yes, because we're going to read it right here. Okay, yes. Okay, it is. All right. So, verse 9 Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. What's a herald? Back in that culture and even in Jesus' time, a herald was somebody that would go into they didn't have like um they didn't have like Fox News breaking news alerts they came across or or like an alert on your phone. A herald would would go from city to city and make a big announcement. Like he would run from city to city and say, We've won the war or the king is dead or whatever. And so a herald was somebody that stood up high and said, Hear you, hear you, listen to the message. And so Isaiah through God, or God through Isaiah is saying, send a herald up on a high mountain to proclaim good news. So the question becomes, what is the good news that this herald is to proclaim? Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's the heart of Isaiah 40 here. What Isaiah the prophet is saying is Behold your God Seated on the throne That song we sing, Behold your God Now the question becomes What does it mean to behold? Does anybody have a different word in their translation Besides in verse 10 there Besides um, at the end of verse 9 and verse 10 Behold your God It's not a word we use a lot What does behold mean? Okay, behold means to look Fix your gaze. Contemplate. It's like, pay close attention. Look. Behold. Look. Here is your God. Here's your God. Behold means look, look. Look up. Look, look close. So what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, okay, the entire chapter 40 is a command for us to look deeply at our God and then the rest of it he's going to explain who this God is behold your God now verses 10 and 11 teach two theological truths that show up in this chapter side by side they keep going back and forth it it really starts with one theological truth and it ends with the second theological truth and both of them are both taught in the Bible so here's theological truth number one in verse 10 what does verse 10 say behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him okay verse 10 Behold your God. What is God like? The Lord God is powerful. He will execute justice as the sovereign king of kings. He's absolutely sovereign, absolutely holy, and absolutely transcendent. So theological truth number one, and we'll see this as we go through Isaiah 40, is God is the high and lifted up, transcendent king of kings, the ruler, the Lord, the one who comes in power and might, the one who will come and execute justice on his enemies. Behold your God, he is powerful, he's mighty. Okay, but verse 11, the second theological truth, look at the contrast. He will tend, I think they're playing ping pong, because that's where the ping pong table is. Uh, They're probably playing, what's that ping pong game you go around? Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Verse 11, (laughs) he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So the second theological truth, nevertheless, God is this powerful sovereign king, but how is this portrayed? He's a loving shepherd. He's a tender father. He leads the sheep with compassion and gentleness. He's absolutely sovereign, he's transcendent, he's powerful, but he's gentle and compassionate like a shepherd. He's a mighty ruler, he's a shepherd. Now both those images should evoke something different in your mind. When you think of a mighty warrior, what do you think about? Someone who's strong, someone who's powerful, someone who fights for you. When you think of a shepherd, what do you think of? Someone that guides you, picks you up, leads you, okay? So God is both. And so what Isaiah is saying here is, Behold your God. This is your God. This is the God to whom we are to worship. Contemplate this God. Look closely at this God. Fix your gaze upon this God. Okay, so the rest of this chapter focuses on this issue by asking some rhetorical questions that start with who. Who or to whom? It takes the question. Isaiah kind of takes us on this path where he's going to ask some questions. And really God's the one that's asking these questions. Who is this God? Who is our great God? So when you're uncertain, or when you're fearful, or when you're doubting, or when you're unsure, one of the best things you can do to strengthen your faith is to behold your God, to think about who God is. Don't think about your problems. I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying stuff them, but I'm saying one of the greatest things to do is to think about who God is. Who is your God? Isaiah says, behold your God. Look at your God. Okay, so the first thing we see here in verses 1 through 11 is the Lord is the shepherd of his people. Words like comfort my people. Speak tenderly to my people. Their iniquity is pardoned. He will lead them like a shepherd in his arms. He will, he will gently carry them. Okay, so that's the first thing we see. Now as we go through the rest of Isaiah 40, we see other attributes of who God is. Now, to keep the S... Second, the Lord is the starter of all things. I could have said creator, but it doesn't, it's not an S word. So I said starter, okay? He's the shepherd of his people. The Lord is the starter of all things, okay? So just think about creator. So let's read verses 12 through 17. And then again, think about behold your God. Who is this God? Okay, so here come the rhetorical questions. Verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now this is poetic language. Let me ask you a question. Don and I were playing a game, Would You Rather, the other day, just the two of us to kind of kill time. And one of the questions was, Would you rather go to outer space or to the bottom of the ocean? And she said outer space because people have been there and come back. Nobody's come to the, Nobody's been to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> we don't know what's down there. <clears throat> Think about how vast just the ocean is. And this is saying, Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Like all the huge, think about how much the, the earth is filled with the oceans. The idea is, here is God just picks that ocean up and just, just measures it. Now, obviously, God, does, the Father, does not hand, have hands. This is poetic language. Who's marked off the heavens with a span? God's got his ruler, and he's, okay, he's marking off the universe out there. Who, who's done that? Now, the answer to the rhetorical question is what? Yeah. Only behold your God, only God. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? The dust of the earth. Particles of dust is God. God knows every single particle of dust at every single time on every place on the earth all at once. Who's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and balance? We were watching this movie the other night on on Netflix um, about the the climber. He's this guy from Tibet, and he's climbed all the highest mountains in the world. And he did it, the longest it's been done is in seven years. He did it in seven months. He climbed 14, I think they're 24,000 feet mountains. And they're all like they're in Nepal, Tibet, Afghanistan area. Now, Mount Everest is the highest highest mountain. But think about that. All these tall mountains, who has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance? So the question is, okay, who intimately knows everything about creation, only the one who created it. So, Psalm 96.5 says this, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now, I just want to let you know that starting in chapter 40 through 48, this is called the trial of the false gods. Isaiah is putting, or God through Isaiah, is putting all the false gods on trial. And he gets kind of sarcastic with them. And we'll look at that here in a moment. And so these rhetorical questions are meant to say, okay, compared to these gods you're worshiping, Babylonians and Philistines and Canaanites, can your gods do this? And the answer is no. Only the living God. This is very similar to what God tells Job. Remember what happened with Job? His he suffers, his friends come to him, and then finally who shows up to him at the end? God shows up to him and says, brace, brace yourself like a man. God shows up to the world one. And God just starts like hitting Job with all these questions. And so Job 38, 5-11. through Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Who determined the ocean and the currents and the waves and who did all that? God. Now look at verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Do you realize the Holy Spirit was at creation? Sometimes we think God the Father is the only one that created. Jesus was there at creation. The Father was there at creation. Genesis 1-2 says the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So through God's Spirit, he made the world. Psalm 33-6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, by the word of the Lord. Now, does anybody want to give God counsel? Verse 13. Anybody want to tell God what to do? When God made the earth, verse 14, whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice? And who taught God knowledge? And who who showed God the way of understanding? Anybody teach God? No. This is what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Or who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. These rhetorical questions. Who can can measure the mountains? Who can scoop up the ocean in his hand? Who can give God counsel to, to how and why he did all this? Who gave God wisdom? And you're supposed to just sit there with your mouth shut and say, nobody, God. Proverbs 3.19 The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding he established the heavens. Ponder that for a moment. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding he established the heavens. Whose wisdom and whose understanding are we talking about? God's wisdom. That that blows your mind. How wise is God? How understanding is God? Can we even quantify it? We can't even quantify it. One thing that Isaiah is saying here is that God is not contingent on his creation. God is not part of his creation. God is separate from his creation. God has always been... God, by wisdom and God, by knowledge, created all things out of nothing by his word. So he stands separate from his creation. He's in control of creation. He created it. He stands above his creation. Now, that's what makes Christianity different than a lot of other world religions. Most world religions are what we call pantheistic in nature. When we go to South Asia and you're around all the different Hindu gods and goddesses or you think about Buddhism or you think about New Age Pantheism says this only the spiritual dimension exists and the spiritual reality is eternal impersonal, and unknowable in other words everything is part of God and God is in everyone and everything man is one with ultimate reality and he has the divine spark of God within him So what you need to do is you need to become one with God by tapping into whatever there is out there. So instead of God being separate from his creation, God is part of his creation. You're part of God. God's part of you. God's part of the trees. God's part of everything. So you've got to try to figure out how to become like God with this inner spark of God in you. That's what other world religions believe. The Bible won't let us do that because God stands above his creation. Okay, if I open this up since they're done messing around in there. okay verse 15 behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales behold he takes up the coastlands like fine dust the nations are like a drop from a bucket what's a drop from a bucket okay the nations when you look at the world today, what you, like? Okay, we're, we're thinking about now, okay, China's on the move. Russia's on the move. Iran's on the move. All these nations are fighting for power. And the question becomes, well, who's really in power? Who's really in control? God. These nations, no matter how big and mighty they think they are, they're like a drop in the bucket. They're like sand on a scale. And then verse 16, he talks about Lebanon. I'm sorry, yeah, verse 16, I don't know why it says verse 15, but verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are the beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon at that time, this is before Babylon's coming, so the, the nation of Israel didn't really know about Babylon until Babylon showed up and ransacked jerusalem and took him off at that time lebanon was the powerful nation in the world and so it's kind of babble lebanon is a metaphor for the the greatest nation that israel knew at that time and what isaiah is saying is like lebanon wouldn't even be enough to to start a fire with they would not suffice for fuel lebanon is great and awesome and as many trees lebanon was known for its big cedar trees as much trees as Lebanon had, as much natural resources, as great a nation as they had, they wouldn't even be anything. And so that's kind of a way of saying the nations are like nothing. And then that's how it ends there. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted as less than nothing in emptiness. Really, the wording there in the original Hebrew is like non-existent. Now, we need to be careful. Does this mean God doesn't care about the nations? No, that's not what we mean. God cares about the nations. He wants people to be saved. That's why we go to unreached people groups. This is saying, in comparison to who God is as creator of all things, the nations are as nothing. Now, what do the nations think? They're all that. What Nations are struggling for power. I want to be... And that's happened since the very beginning. What happened at the Tower of Babel? They wanted to create a tower to get up to God. And God looks down, that's a puny little thing. Really what he says, he scatters them and makes them speak different languages. So even from the beginning, nations and people have tried to assert power to be dominant. And God says, it's not even, Is this? they're non-existent. I was there at creation, I spoke creation into existence. I can scoop up the ocean in my hand. I know every single dust particle on the earth. I know the exact height of the mountains. I know exactly how many stars are in the universe. I'm the one that created all things. And I'm the one that has all understanding. Behold your God. Who can do this? And the rhetorical answer is only God. Okay. So that's the second thing we've seen. Number one, God is the shepherd of his people. Number two, the Lord is the starter of all things. Okay, third. The Lord is superior to idols. The Lord is superior to idols. Look at verses 18 through 20. Again, this is a to whom. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. What was Israel's biggest temptation? To give in to idolatry. And back then, what was, what was idolatry? You would, you would buy but you'd go find wood and you'd find somebody that could craft something that would look awesome with wood you'd overlay it with gold or metal and so you'd have this wonderful talisman or this wonderful idol that was mysterious and, and seemed powerful and you would want to bow down and worship it but what was it? a piece of wood that and realistically if you got cold and you needed firewood you could throw it into the fire and keep yourself warm it doesn't move doesn't have any power, and God's like, are you going to compare me to that? I mean, God's getting kind of sarcastic here. Or, who are you going to compare me to? An idol? Somebody that goes and buys wood, or gets wood and then overcasts it with gold? He finds a craftsman to set up an idol that will not move? All right, we're going to look at different places in Isaiah where God gets sarcastic with the idols, Okay. So let's jump out of chapter 40, and we're going to go just in the same section where he puts the idols on trial. So go to 43.10. Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no, God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. There is no other God besides God. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 44, 9-10. This is where it really gets kind of funny, because your uninspired heading says the folly of idolatry. Is that what your ESV says over verse 9? Okay, so let's look at verses 9-10. through 10. And you can probably read this whole section, but just for the sake of time. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither seen or know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that's profitable for nothing? Why cast an idol? It's profitable for nothing. It's empty. It's foolish. Okay, Isaiah 46, 5 through 9 To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship? They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble." Are you going to compare me to an idol? God's basically saying, that's the dumbest thing you can do. Because an idol is a piece of wood. It's man-made. It's lifeless. So let's, let's backtrack. Can an idol scoop up the ocean in his hand? Can an idol know the height of the highest mountain? The answer is obviously no. They're man-made pieces of wood that have no power. Now, let's make this a little bit more practical. Probably none of you are going to go hire a goldsmith or a silversmith and give them a piece of wood and say, fashion this into an idol for me and overlay it with gold and bronze and let me put it on my fireplace and every night I'm going to go lay candles and and I'm going to bow down. None of you are probably going to do that. (laughs) But are we just as much tempted towards idols? Anything that you think is going to take the place of God becomes an idol. And can they do those things that God can do? No. They're empty. They're lifeless. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols. Hi, Prasad, I'm glad you're watching. Turn from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. How they turned from idols to serve the living God. That's what salvation is. It's turning from idols to serve Jesus. Whatever idol that is. Remember what Isaiah is saying here. Behold your God. Who is your God? Look at your God. Fix your eyes on the living God. Where do our eyes fix often? On idols. Replacements things we think are going to satisfy us as opposed to having our eyes fixed on God. And then 1 John 5, 21, the very last verse to 1 John says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right. So number one, the Lord is the shepherd of his people. Number two, the Lord is the starter of of all things. You have problem, I eat, I'm having problems. I'm a creator. <laughs> Number three, the Lord is superior <coughs> to idols. <coughs> okay, we could just stop there and say, okay, Isaiah, you've made your point. And he keeps going. Fourth, the Lord is sovereign over all things. Verses 21 and 24. <coughs> Verses 21 to 24, the Lord is sovereign over all things. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth (coughs) as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He who blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The Lord sits where? Verse 22. Above the circle of the earth. Now, there's a lot of commentators that are wondering, like, what is the circle of the earth? Is Is this a... affirmation of the earth being a globe Uh, could be um we don't really know what it is but what it is probably is it's a figurative way of saying that god not only creates the earth but he sits over the earth as the sovereign one guiding and, and ruling and upholding everything and what does he say about these nations again the inhabitants are like grasshoppers Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Before it was the nations. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. Now he's making it more specific to world leaders. World leaders are like nothing to God. They're like grasshoppers. God makes them to be empty. That should give us great encouragement. Because when we think of world leaders, we often think these are men or women who have ultimate we think, have ultimate power, and they're going to um, maybe do wicked things. Now, they may do wicked things, but, and they may get away with it in this world. What will happen in the world to come at the judgment? Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a stricter judgment for world leaders that execute wickedness against their people. Like, kind of like we talked about Sunday, There's gonna be I think there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. I think there's, I, I hope, this is my hope, for some of those world dictators that, that had genocide and killed millions of their people, I hope they get a stricter judgment than maybe the Joe Blow person that lives in an unreached people group that never heard. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that God is the one that sits over sovereign over the nations. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 2, 1-4. through 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their course from us. He who sits in the heavens, notice that same language, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Psalm 2, 4 is the only place I know of in the Bible where God laughs. And it's not a jolly ha 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 ha, it's more of a mocking der- derision type of laugh at these rulers and nations that think that they're all that, that one day God's going to bring to nothing. So the Lord is sovereign over all things, specifically over world leaders that think that they're going to take control, <clears throat> which gives you hope. It may not turn out the way we want right now, but at the end of the age, God will, will make all things right. Okay, number five. The Lord is the sustainer of all things. The sustainer of all things. Verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, Calling them all by name, the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Notice we finally have a name for God here, besides the Lord. What does it say in verse 25? The Holy One. The holy one. Now, in the original Hebrew, there's no definite, there's no definite, there's no definite article of the Holy One. It just says Holy One. Which <coughs> is a stronger way of saying he's he's holy one. He's the only Holy One. So holiness is one of the key attributes of God. Holiness. As a matter of fact, one of the key repeated names of God throughout the book of Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One. And let's go back to chapter 6 and see where Isaiah first saw this. Now this is very familiar. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we looked at this back in September when we were looking at the attributes of God and we talked about holiness. But let's just go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am made a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt's taken away, and your sin atoned for. Verse 3, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why holy three times? It's kind of a, an, a Hebrew way of expressing the ultimate, like to the third power. It'd be like we would like underline, highlight, star, something that we want to draw attention to, the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. Now back on your sheet, Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who's in contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. Do you see the two things there like we talked about earlier? What were the two attributes of God that we see in this passage? He's powerful. He's holy. He's transcendent. But he comes like a tender shepherd. What does it say there? I'm the holy one. My name is holy. I dwell in eternal holiness, but yet I come and meet those that are lowly. I come to those that are brokenhearted. I come to revive the spirit of those who are repentant. So what does God's holiness mean? God's holiness means that he's totally separate and transcendent from his creation. Also, he's morally perfect in every way. Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders? Majestic in holiness. Psalm thirty-three, twenty-one. 21, For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. And then Psalm 99, 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He give you a couple definitions here of theologians of what they've said about God's holiness. Uh, Theologian Louis Burkoff, God is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. That's how he describes holiness. Um, Joel Beeky and Paul Smalley, they've come out with a brand new systematic theology uh, Reform System Act Theology, Volumes 1 and 2. I'm waiting for Volume 3 to come out. But they're these big, thick books, but they're wonderful. It's by Crossway. Here's how Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley define holiness He's set apart by his glory for his glory. He's set apart by his glory because of who he is as God. He is set apart for his glory, it means that he's zealously committed to displaying who he is and all he does. And then R.C. Sproul wrote the the classic book, The Holiness of God. One of my favorite definitions that I keep coming back to. Uh, R.C. says When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He's so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us, he's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. I wonder how many people think that about God in our culture today. So he's the Holy One. Behold your God. Who is your God? Well, he's the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the shepherd. And here he's the Holy One. He's the sustainer. Verse 26, he says, Look up, lift up your eyes and see. Okay, lift up your eyes. What is he, what's he focusing on? Look up at the starry, starry sky. Look up at the stars. Who made these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. Now think about that for a moment. I don't know how many stars there are in just our galaxy, but God has names for every single one of them. Because he created them, and he sustains them. Now, why does what was that? you say probably not the same name as the people here. Even. No, because we don't even know. Like we know an infinitesimal amount of the stars. Orion, Sirius. Orion's more of a constellation, not star. But um, I don't know my astronomy very well. I have to ask my son about that. But why does Isaiah mention stars? Let me give you a little cultural background here. The pagan nations around Israel, including Babylon and Canaanites, worshipped the stars. They were astro- like into astrology and worshiping the stars. So it was always a temptation for Israel to be like the pagan nations and look up and worship the stars. I mean all, it seems like constellations and everything, you know astrology, you know the different astrological Virgo and cancer, and, there's always been a temptation to look up at the stars and worship what God's created as supposed to God. So God says, listen, all the nations around you are looking up and they're worshiping stars, but I'm going to ask you, who made those stars? And who actually knows them by name? 2 Kings 17, 16. This is talking about Israel. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. So part of Baal worship, if you heard of Baal, the, the Old Testament false god, part of the Baal worship of the false god was worshiping stars, the hosts of heaven, star, star worship. Now, if you remember in Genesis 15, when God made a promise to Abraham about how many descendants he was going to have, what does God tell Abraham to do? In Genesis 15, 15. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them then he said to him, social or offspring free." So what, what's the object lesson for, for Abraham? Okay, start numbering the stars. Okay. One, two, three, four. By the time he gets to like five million, okay, okay, God, I get the point. You can't number them. That's a promise to Abraham about his descendants, kind of a metaphorical way. But think about what God says here in Isaiah. Abraham, you're trying to count all those stars if you can. Not only do I need not need to count them, I know how many are there, and I, and I have names for all of them. I know them by name. And so think about that for a moment. How much valuable is a star compared to you? If God knows all the stars by name, how much more valuable are you? God knows when a sparrow dies and falls, how more valuable are you than the sparrows? God has every hair on your head numbered the way he has all the stars numbered. Now, sustainer. God sustains all things. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. This is really focused more on God the Father because it's Old Testament. Again, it's pointing towards Jesus. But let's talk about Jesus. Since Jesus the Son is also fully God, He also sustains all things by His power. There are two verses in the New Testament that talk about Jesus sustaining all things. What does it mean to sustain all things? What does it mean to sustain? Keep it going. Keep it going, uphold, keeping things together. Okay? Colossians 1, 16-18. This is talking about Jesus here. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. All right, verse 17. In Jesus, all things hold together. That's where we get our English word sustain. It's the Greek word sunestao. Kind of get the word sustain. What it means is, instead of our universe being chaotic, Jesus keeps order out of chaos by holding all things together. Think about the smallest particle in the universe. Does anybody know what the smallest particle in the universe is? I'm not a science guy. You're you're not a science guy. A quark. I don't know what a quark is. A proton, a neutron, whatever. Billions and billions of particles of matter that ensure that we don't disintegrate and fly off the planet and that there's gravity. Why is everything moving the way it should move at all places and all times in the universe? Because Jesus sustains it he holds it together hebrews 1 3 he jesus is the radiance of the glory of god in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of god he upholds the universe how by the word of his power so now Jesus sustains the universe. He upholds the universe. Jesus knows all the stars by name because he created all the stars by name. He keeps them there. He holds all things together. If you, after reading Isaiah 4, you don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, there's something wrong <laughs> with, with you. And I say that in the kindest way. All right. Up to this point, we've seen big God, sovereign God, God who sits enthroned in heavens over his creation, God who brings the nations to nothing, God who holds the the, the balance of the nations in his hand, who scoops up the oceans, the big, sovereign, transcendent, holy God, this powerful, mighty God. But how does Isaiah end, chapter 40? What's the sixth attribute of God? The Lord is the strengthener of his people. It's one thing to have a theology of who God is and know your doctrine. It's another thing to know this God through experience that he cares for you. Let me ask it a different way. Do you want to worship a God who has all power but doesn't care for you? He may have all the power in the world, he may be the creator, he may be the sovereign, but he could be like a distant God up in heaven that has no, no um, relationship with his people. Now you could worship him for being powerful, but not only do we worship God for being powerful, for being transcendent, but we worship God because he comes and meets us at our point in need. He's like a shepherd that strengthens his people. So again, there are two true key truths in Isaiah 40. We've seen them all the way through. Here's the first truth. The first is that God is transcendent. He's high and lifted up. He's absolutely sovereign over all things. He is the Holy One. We've seen that. But the second is this. This same God is also imminent, which means He's close. He's caring. While He is transcendent, that does not mean He's cold and distant. He's a loving father who cares for his children. The same God is both absolutely holy, high and lifted up, but at the same time cares for us deeply. Behold your God. Now let's read probably the famous part of Isaiah 27, or 40 that you know, and that's the very end of it. So 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my ways hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary; they shall walk and not be faint. Verse twenty-seven. They ask a question about the justice of God. Israel, why are you why are you impugning God's character by saying that God doesn't know what's going on and that He's being unfair? Why are we being Why are we going to be judged and taken off into Babylonian captivity? Is God ever unfair? Genesis 18.25, Abraham said this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God always does what is just. So, let's think about suffering for a moment. Or... When you're going through suffering or times of trouble or times of sorrow, or maybe even this is kind of what atheists think, there's two issues. Either number one, God is ignorant of my suffering. He doesn't know. He's not paying attention. Or number two, God doesn't care. He doesn't know and he doesn't care. Sometimes you feel that way, haven't you? Well, God must not know what I'm going through. Well if he does know what I'm going through, he just must not care. So how would you answer these objections? Does God have exhaustive knowledge of all things? Does God know all things? Okay, let's go to one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. You ever want to just, if somebody doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God, just take them to Isaiah 46. Let's go from 9 through 11. 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass, I've purposed it, and I will do it. Verse ten: God declares the end from the beginning. Not just God predicts what's going to happen. God's a good predictor. He's seen. He God has sat back and observed many, many years of human behavior, and he kind of can predict what's going to happen. Well, yes, but that's not what this says. It says God declares. It means God knows. God speaks it. God ordains it. God has exhaustive foreknowledge of every single thing that happens. If you think that, all right, think about it this way: if God knows the stars by name, is He not intimately familiar with everything that's going on in your life? So you you, you can cross off number one and say God doesn't. Like God does God know? Absolutely. Okay. The second objection would be: okay, God must know, but He doesn't care, because if God Cared, he would do something. So does God care? Exodus 34 The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Of course, God is forgiving, and God is loving. So, verse 27. Jacob and Israel, i.e. the nation, they're kind of complaining against God. God, you don't know what's going on. God, why are we going to be taken into Babylonian captivity? I understand that you're this big creator, God. You're this big holy God. You're this big God that's in the sky, but you don't know what's going on in my life. And then verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yes, the Lord is the everlasting God. creator of the ends of the earth he does not faint or grow weary his understanding is unsearchable okay so reiterate he's the what god the everlasting god he's the creator of the ends of the earth he does not faint or grow weary aren't you glad that god never tires because he sustains all things he's the unchanging god he's the everlasting god now his understanding is unsearchable. Now, let me say this carefully. God is the almost unknowable God. Now, notice I use the word almost. We know everything that God wants us to know about Him in the Word. But there are some things we will never know about God. Now, let's go to another place in Isaiah. Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 55, 6-11. You, you're probably familiar with this passage, too. Can we know everything about God? We know He's Creator. We know He's everlasting. There's, there's a lot of things in the Scripture that teach us about who God is, but there's still that unsearchable, unknowable aspect of who God is and His ways. So Isaiah 55:6 6-11. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon His name while He's near. He's the almost unknowable God, but yet notice what it says there. Verse 29. This mighty, powerful, transcendent, holy God does what? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and are weary. The word weary there means to be basically beaten up by the pressures of life life's just kind of beating you up circumstances pile upon pile upon and you're just you are weary because of life the word weak means because of that you actually lack strength emotionally spiritually and maybe even physically so you're weary from the things of life and that causes you to be either physically weak or, or even emotionally weak. And that's where we need to be sometimes. Because in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. He gives power to the faint. He gives strength. Increases strength to him who has no might. So power and strength. If you need power and strength, if you're beaten up by life, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but maybe you came in here tonight and you're just weary of life. Sometimes we just get weary. We get run down. We get beat down. We just get tired. This God who can scoop up the ocean in his hand, this God who sits enthroned in heaven, this God who's high and lifted up, he comes directly to you and gives you power. Verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Now that word young men literally means choice young men. Like men that were in the prime, prime athletes in in their peak condition. Think about an Olympic athlete who's in his... a young man who's in his prime, even at the prime of life, in peak condition, the greatest athlete in the world is going to what? Can't keep going forever. I mean, Michael Phelps is going to get tired after so many laps in the pool. You're going to get tired, even even those that are in the peak. Psalm 103, 1-5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord all oh my soul and forgetting all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Strength will arise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait. I'm trying to wake you guys up because it's getting. Verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Okay, so this is a hard concept to think about. What does it mean to wait? Nobody likes waiting. You like waiting in line? You like waiting in traffic? You like waiting behind a slow person that's in the aisle in Walmart and you're trying to get around them? None of us us like to wait. They that wait. So what does it mean to wait? Well, there's a couple, about three things I thought about here that means to wait. And waiting's not passive. It doesn't mean you just sit back and do nothing. Because obviously you're called to live your life. But it means that we have complete dependence upon him for everything. You're completely depending upon the Lord. And as you're depending upon him, this is something we don't want to do. Number two, we submit to his sovereignty to determine how and when he will work on our behalf. Okay? How and when? God, I want you to do it this way, and I want you to do it this time. And God may say, no, you will wait for me, and I determine the the rules here. But you also have to wait means you have confidence and trust that he knows what he's doing and he'll take care of you. What are you going what's going to happen when you wait up on the Lord? You will re, they will renew their strength. It's kind of counterintuitive. You're renewed by waiting. You're renewed by waiting, trusting, relying. They'll mount up like wings, Why eagles back in the Israel to Israel the eagle was the most elegant and powerful bird. You think of an eagle's wings, they'll, sh- they'll run and not be weary, they'll walk and not faint. Now obviously that's poetic language. But it's this whole idea that God will renew your strength. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. If you're heavy-laden, if you're weary, if you're burdened, come to Jesus. He'll give you rest for your souls. Wait upon the Lord, He'll give you rest. What's our temptation? To be anxious, to try to fix things, to try to run around and try to manipulate the situation for our advantage. It doesn't mean we're not wise and we shouldn't make good decisions, but oftentimes the last thing we want to do is wait or pray. So let's talk about some applications tonight. What are some applications? From so we've looked in depth, pretty in depth at, at, at Isaiah 40. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. The Lord is the starter of all things. The Lord is sovereign over all things. The Lord is the sustainer of all things. The Lord is superior to idols. And the Lord is the strengthener of his people. I think I got all six of them there. So what are some applications? Okay, One. God strengthens you as you hear the preaching of his gospel. How did this whole thing start? Verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. You need to sit under preaching and teaching, and hopefully it comes from this, this pulpit, this pastor where you will be challenged to behold your God. You need to hear the good news. You need to hear the preaching of the gospel week in and week out. You need to hear the announcement that Jesus saves sinners and you can find rest for your soul in Jesus and this is your God, the God who saves. So that's number one. Number two, we can pray with confidence because our God is sovereign and good. Do you, does it give you confidence to pray to a God like this? Do you want anything less than this God? No, you, you want this God. Behold your God. The God who's sovereign and creator and holy. You can pray with confidence because God is sovereign and his God is good. Number three, when you look at a passage of scripture like this, we need to be reminded of the vast difference between the eternal God and our own mortality. We're like grass. Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So what are the two truths that we've seen in Isaiah 40? Number one, God is transcendent, holy, powerful, creator, awesome, high and lifted up, yet he's a shepherd, and he cares, and he gives power, and he renews, and he's interested in and he meets you at your point of need. This is your God. Now, last question. Okay. Most Jewish people in a synagogue, if I would have just preached this, would have agreed with me. God's powerful. God's creator. God's a sustainer. You can pray to God. But let's ask the question that makes this Christian. How has God most gloriously shown us his comfort, his sovereignty, and his power? Through Jesus, whom is prophesied in here through John the Baptist, pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. So I want to end with one passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Okay, stop right there. The glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So if you want to know who God is, what is Paul saying? It's the glory of Christ. Behold your God. It's Christ. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Where do you most find the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Where do you most see the image of God? In the glory of Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So Isaiah 40 gives us the knowledge of the fullness of God the Father. But we also see the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who's the glory of God. And that's why Isaiah says over and over, Behold your God. Look unto Jesus. Look unto the Lord. Think deeply about who this God is. The transcendent, holy, high and lifted up, powerful, sovereign God who at the same time loves you, cares for you, strengthens you. And how has God most clearly shown his glory and his power and his love and his strength? Through Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Comfort, comfort for my people. Your sins are taken away. It's going to come through Jesus, the glory of God the Father. So, that ends Isaiah 40. I think we've got about six or seven minutes. Are there any questions or things that you want clarified or observations or comments? Mm-hmm. Comments. Comments. So, yeah. the two questions, yeah, the, the, the question, you know, the question, either God is ignorant mm-hmm. or, or he is doesn't care about my suffering... I look at that and I think the people who say God is ignorant are the ones that are like, well, God is good and he's loving. So if I'm feeling miserable and things aren't going the way I think they should, it must be because God just doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And then God must not care about my suffering comes about when we forget who God is. I mean, so Isaiah does this awesome job of just going, this is who God is, this is who God is, Mm -hmm. this is who God is. He is so far beyond you. Mm -hmm. Um... Because I think a huge temptation for us is we we want to tell God what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I want this. I need this at this time. Mm -hmm. This is how my life is supposed to go. Right. And God's up there going, "Mm, no. My goal for you is here, not here. Or we're also tempted to think, uh, to create what we want God to be in our image. This is who I want my God to be. Because I want what I want. Because I want what I want. And Isaiah's like, no, behold your God. Here is the God of the Holy One of Israel keep your eyes fixed on the true god. Okay, good good observation. Some other other thoughts. Comments, questions. I think that's god says I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I we started back in the fall with the attributes of God, took a break from that and went to Philippians. Came back to the attributes of God in one chapter. So I would encourage you to take Isaiah 40 and just meditate on it this week. Go back and read it. It's long, just just read it, digest it, think about it, Um, maybe take the supporting scriptures that are in your notes and and go back and look at those, but when you're discouraged, when you're um, fearful, again, when you're uncertain, we can look at all the different things that are going wrong in in the world and in our lives, but Isaiah takes us back to behold your God. Mm -hmm. Look at who God is does mean your problems are going to go away. It means your focus is on where it needs to be. The one who sits enthroned over all things, the Creator. Jerry. I surprised at how many other verses from different uh, places in the Bible that were in just 40. Did I, did I use the supporting verses? hmm well, the reason I do that, Jerry, and you probably wonder, Pastor Sean has a lot of verses on Sunday mornings. What I want to do, and you may, not, you may not intuitively know this, but maybe you don't. The reason why we stick with the main text and we have all the supporting scriptures is to show you the internal consistency of the scriptures and how Scripture interprets Scripture, and there's tons of cross-references that teach the same thing or affirm the same thing in both the Old and New Testament. And I try to sprinkle all the teaching with that so that you can see the fullness of what God's Word says about a certain topic, that it doesn't just show up in the passage we're in, but it's repeated by multiple authors in different places. And so that's that's a good observation, Jerry, that yeah, Isaiah 40, you can go, I mean, how many songs tie back to that? Job, Job. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same author, the Holy Spirit, but multiple human authors. So it's the same message, just told through different people. All right. All right, next week is our last Wednesday night of the year. We'll be back in the sanctuary because the kids will be done. I do not know what we're going to study. Um, just I'll announce it on Facebook and you'll be... Mm -hmm. surprised all right all right let's pray well father after reading a scripture like this we can't but think about your greatness your holiness your sovereignty the fact that you're the creator of all things you're high and lifted up you sit enthroned above the earth you rule and you reign, but yet at the same time, Lord, we're reminded that you're a shepherd, that tenderly and gently cares for your people, that you renew us when we're weary, you give us strength when we're tired. Lord, there may be some here tonight or even maybe some watching online, the live stream, that are, that are weary, that are tired, that are exhausted, and they need to be renewed. They need your power. Lord, help them to trust, help them to rest, help them to um, come to you for that security and assurance that only you can give, Jesus. They can cast their cares upon you because you care about them. So, Lord, especially this time of the year, we're, we're Christmas season, where are going be real crazy. Would you renew us and would you mount us up on wings like eagles and let us walk and not go fa- grow faint to your glory alone? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. That was great.